Welcome to Six Pack. I'm your host, Erin Inselman. This is an uncut show that supports parents in the enjoyment of raising children and having the fire and spirit to do life, with a side of sarcasm and humor, of course. I'm a mom of six, a wife, and a business owner in the health and fitness industry. Each week, myself and other experts will be sharing pointers and stories on parenting, self-growth, health and fitness, and relationships. Join me for this real and raw show dedicated to sharing tips, tribulations, and the triumphs of everyday life. Thank you so much for joining me again today. I actually have two very special guests on the show today, Steve and Hope Studer. They are actually, Steve is a retired teacher and coach and administrator, and Hope, she was in the restaurant business and a financial planner as well, and the two met later in life, and Since 2004, they have been married, and in that year, they sold their homes and their cars to downsize because they were merging, you know, two lives together and decided that it was a good time to try a new life. And wait till you hear the story of these two and the insurmountable of courage and strength that they both had to be able to get rid of everything they owned. And within about 18 months, they were living their dream of sailing in the Caribbean and living on a boat. And so they actually worked very hard and took some ASA sailing courses. And then they even, I mean, you wait till you hear their story. They crewed on like a 62 foot yacht in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, they've been to Turkey, to Greece, and they actually reside most of their time in the Trinidad area. And so the life that these two have actually chosen is quite extraordinary. And I'm very excited to have them on as guests today so they can share their story with you because it definitely is a story of perseverance. But more importantly, which is just absolutely so cool, is that they said yes. They decided to try this and have been very successful at it. And again, I I just can't wait to let you hear their story and to introduce them. So I would just like to welcome them to the show. And I really enjoyed talking to them. And I, I hope you enjoy listening to them as well today. Welcome, Hope and Steve. I'm going to actually just let them begin and tell their story, even about just how they met and how they began their journey. Okay. All right. So um, for starters, we've been living aboard since 2006, and we were full-time for two years, and then the last 12 years, we've been going half-time because of medical concerns and that kind of stuff. And the lead-up to that that journey, if you will, is uh, we met and married in 2004. And as people who do marry later in life, uh, we had duplicate of everything. So we <laughs> putting houses for sale. We put everything we owned for sale with the idea that we would live and drive and whatever in whatever remained. And so that was 2004. And we decided as first one house sold and then some cars sold and then the lake property sold and we decided this would be a really good time to sell everything and try a new life. So we just kept at it and it took 18 months to sell everything we owned. 
When we were done with that process, we had nine totes full of stuff that we had saved. That would be things like cold weather gear if we needed. When we return, you always keep one set of good clothing for funerals and those kinds of things. If you have <laughs> sure. But everything else was gone. Really? And, uh, that was a very freeing thing. You know, all of the stuff that you think is so important to you. By the time we got done with this process, we were just throwing stuff away and giving stuff away because it was meaningless and it wouldn't fit our new life. Yeah. So Steve had always vaguely dreamed of living and sailing in the Caribbean. And tell him your story about Paul. In, in Minnesota, you, uh, I was a school principal for 23 years after I taught for seven years. And in Minnesota, you have to serve under a principal for a year to become a principal. Yeah. And I hired an intern principal with me who served as my vice principal, and he was a sailor. And so after I retired, eventually he took a leave of absence and wanted to sail down the Mississippi and around to Florida. And so I met him down there. I met him on the Mississippi in St. Louis, and we sailed or motored down uh, the Mississippi in November. And I kept thinking it was going to get warmer. <laughs> it got warmer. But anyway, he, I went with him down to the Gulf, and then I left him and came back. And then about nine months later, Hope and I went down and met him in Florida. In the Bahamas. In the Bahamas. Okay. In the Bahamas. And we sailed in the Bahamas for three weeks with him. And so that's kind of how I got involved in sailing. And so, Steve, have you always been a boater? Did you grow up, you know, with a family that was a boating family or anything? Or was this just kind of a first experience for you? It was a dream. It was a dream. Yeah, he was not a sailor from birth. He, he did not grow up around the water. It was, uh -huh. it was, it was a part of, of that relationship with Paul, I think, that piqued your curiosity. Right. Sure. Right. And so... After we had sailed in the Bahamas for that time period and found out, you know, it was really cool and you meet a lot of people and you go to a lot of interesting places. So we decided that was in 2003 is when he went, went on that trip. And so then in 2004, we went to Florida and took American Sailing Association courses. Oh, wow. Um, the first because I knew nothing, nothing mm -hmm. about sailing at all. And Steve knew some, but not enough that we would be safe for either ourselves or anybody in the immediate vicinity when we sure. were in the boat by. So we took the ASA courses. And then in 2005, we had an opportunity to go to the Eastern Mediterranean to serve as crew on a 62 foot yacht. Wow. So, we did that. We went, sailed in Turkish and Greek waters again for three weeks and um, had some really, again, wonderful experiences, interesting people. Great food. Yeah. Great food. <laughs> I bet. I bet great food. Amazing culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was 
we went slowly enough that we could see all kinds of, of cultural sites, antiquities, etc., ruins. Just it was a really wonderful introduction to how this works, you know, the mm-hmm. lifestyle, because there's so much more to it than just sailing. Right. So how did that trip, you know, that experience when you were on the yacht, how did that even come about? I had an architect design my third home uh-huh. and he ended up going to the Met and sailing with this guy from California. And the guy called him up the next year and said, you want a crew again? And, and my friend said, or my architect said, uh, I can't, but I know Steve Studer and he, he might and his wife. So that's how we got connected. Wow. This yacht that we were on now, the price tag on it is $3 million. So I it bet. was a really nice boat. Yeah, that's that's a good place to learn on, huh? <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, it set our expectations pretty much for what we were gonna be able to get and and we could not we could not meet that standard. So then after we got back from Turkey and Greece and we sold the rest of our stuff, mm-hmm. uh, moved into a friend's basement. And <laughs> while I was continuing to work, while Steve was looking for a boat. And so he then went to Trinidad in 2006 because there was a a boat of the the type that he had been doing a lot of research. And so there was a boat of the type that he knew we wanted. It's a big boat in that it's very heavy and it's full keel and it's a very safe boat they are. And we thought we needed that because we were just real novices. Uh, So he went to Trinidad and looked at this boat, took his friend Paul, his sailing friend Paul with him. They did the sea trial and all that kind of stuff. And he came back and this was before cell phones and and things were really very, very commonplace. And he called me collect and said, I bought a boat. You can retire. Um, (laughs) Resignation. And so I got off the phone and that's what I did. That's amazing. What kind of feeling was that for you? For me? Yeah. Or for, yeah. Well, I, I know he's, ex- I know he was ecstatic. He was absolutely probably, I mean, like, he's living his dream, but for you yeah. to be like, okay, this is it. This is time. Yeah. Cause we hadn't even shared what we were thinking about doing with him. <laughs> you know, like oh. May or may not happen. And then and there are a lot of family things and complications and, and people who are aghast at what you're thinking about doing. So right. we were very, very quiet about it until it actually happened. And then it was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And if my attitude about everything is say yes as much as you can. I love it. And we figured out if this didn't work out, it was not an irrevocable move. We could sell the boat and move on to something else. So, and we were fortunate that we were, after selling everything, we had the ability to do that. Yes. You know, reinvest our proceeds in a boat and live really quite cheaply. And so it was not as though there would be no other options. We weren't going to be stuck with it. Right. So right. Um, then right before, just as a kind of a, a line up to my parents, because they were not in, in favor of this at all. We spent, I think six weeks touring Europe with them before we left to go to, to Trinidad. 
And that, that kind of made it a little bit easier for them. They realized they probably wouldn't miss us as much as they thought after you spent six weeks traveling with somebody. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you've, had, you've had your fill with each other. <laughs> exactly. So then we, we flew to Trinidad to take possession of the boat. And as I said earlier, the sailing is just one facet of what you have to do because your boat is your home. And so you need to know, just as you need to know in your home where the hot water heater is and the, the electrical panel and all that kind of stuff, we had to learn all of that stuff about boats. So yeah. we had to learn yeah. the engine system and the water maker system, the electrical system, all of the equipment that was specific to our boat. And then funny things that you don't think about, like customs and immigration and how you check into countries and what the protocols are. Um, some countries, for example, again, this was quite some time ago, uh, you had to bring your own carbon paper. Mm. So you'd always walk with five sheets of carbon paper so that you could fill out the forms and quintuplets without doing it all by hand. We had to figure out how you provision, you know, stock your boat. And we had done a lot of reading before before we embarked on this. And while most of it was really good information, it just served as a template that we had to then adapt to what our plans were and what our capabilities were and what the facilities on our boat would stand. Mm -hmm. Wow. Kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting when we were provisioning and in Trinidad, we're buying all this canned food. and We, we neglected to think that, geez, wherever we're going, people got to eat. <laughs> and about 10 years later, we threw, we gave most of that canned food away because we never used it. <laughs> because we're not canned food, we're used to fresh stuff. And yeah. that worked really well. I, I think I'll explain just a little bit about our sailboat. Yes. That is, yeah, it's about 40 feet long and it has two queen size beds in separate bedrooms or berths. Wow. And to my way of thinking, a huge galley or kitchen compared to most boats, and it has two full-size couches, and one of them turns into a double bed. It has a, a bathroom with a shower. It has a huge cockpit where we spend a great deal of our time when we're on the boat, and um, the systems on the boat are just absolutely amazing. There's about 20 systems that you have to learn in order to function. You have to learn how to anchor. You learn. You have to learn the protocol on every island. I, it just, it's just mind-boggling to start with. But we had a lot of help and a lot of good friends that we made that made sure that we were able to function, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But let's go back to Trinidad a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we stayed in Trinidad for 18 months. And during that 18 months, we had some very unusual and exciting experiences, one of which was Diwali. Trinidad is 40% East Indian, and the East Indians came over as indentured servants. So there are whole pockets of just Indian people. And Diwali is the festival of lights. And so there was a guy, believe it or not, by the name of Jesse James, <laughs> who was a driver that kind of takes care of all the yachts, and he set up this field trip 
that we could go and visit one of these communities. And I asked the second year that we went to Diwali, I asked if I could help cook because it was a vegetarian meal for 150 people. And it was all done in big cauldrons over open fires. And so myself and two women made a vegetarian meal for 150 people. Wow. And we ate it on banana leaves. And that was very interesting. I want to say something about Diwali, you said, is the festival of lights, the Hindu New Year. And so the community invites people to come in. They put little open pots of oil with a wick in it. They're called dayas, and they're all throughout the community. And people dressed in their finest parade through the community, and everyone hands out sweets and treats and that kind of stuff. So we were able to partake of that, to go into some of the regional local temples and see and then there was a Hindu not excuse me an Indian dance program that was put on for us and it was just amazing absolutely amazing I mean with all the the traveling I just can't even imagine just all the culture and the relationships that you guys have formed along the way over the years and just how you know much you've learned about just diversity within our world Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I, I, a lot of times, I was doing a yoga practice. This was later in Grenada, but I was doing a yoga practice. And there were 15 of us in the class, and there were 13 different nationalities represented. That's and, fantastic. Uh, you don't realize until you're in that type of milieu that, that of course, our similarities are much greater than our differences. Mm-hmm. But that also those differences are wonderful to celebrate. So we yeah. have over the last 15 years celebrated Diwali with our Hindu friends still in Grenada and Eid, the end of Ramadan. And we have Rasta friends and have observed some of their rites. And I go to a spiritual West Indian Baptist church in Grenada. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just <laughs> And Steve said we were 18 months in Trinidad, in, but that was in total. We sailed part okay. of that because we were, we were getting used to our boat. We would sail around Trinidad and the Gulf of Paria, anchor in various bays. One was a little island called Chakachakari, which was a, a deserted leper colony from probably really? was going on in the 60s. And it was just amazing to explore that. And there were still medical records in the buildings. Oh, my gosh. It camped so very, very quickly. So um, that was interesting. Another thing we did in Trinidad was participate in Carnival. And we here in the U.S., of course, know that as Mardi Gras. But Trinidad has the second largest Carnival celebration in the world, second only to Rio. And we were, with the help of this driver, and this is his business, is, is uh, running a service for people in the cruising community. He took us to what are called mass camps, masquerade camps, where they're practicing the steel drums, they're making the costumes, you get to enjoy all of that, participate in all of that. Then we played, it's called playing, playing mass, and we played... Dirty Mas, which is called Juve, it's the night before Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. It's the night uh-huh. before. You start at 2 in the morning, 
and you go out and everybody throws paint all over everybody. <laughs> and you walk through the streets in your band and you have a semi-trailer truck with amplifiers on it and the music is playing. It's so that sounds funny. like yeah, that sounds like and a good party. It was. <laughs> you, you have an, your own bar truck with you. And I think and you, there's a, a gate you do, it's called chipping. And I think we chipped for about 12 hours. <laughs> it was such a, such an amazing, an amazing event to participate in and to view. Then the next day on Mardi Gras itself, Fat Tuesday, is what's called Pretty Mass. And that's the one you see on television with everybody in costumes. and the Oh, sure. Huge. Like all the feathers and, yeah. Yeah, like there will be 20 feet wide and 20 feet long with moving parts and underneath that is a person who has been working out all year (laughs) they wear what looks like a a catcher's guard here across their chest but it's made out of metal sits over their shoulders and then there are three wheels and I think they get them from shopping carts wow uh, and put that over their shoulder put that wheelie bit behind them and they have to dance that through the streets for 12 hours oh so it takes a great deal of strength and, yeah straight uh, yeah a great deal of strength and stamina like you said I mean it's that physically that's just that's a ment- physically and mentally that's a lot of that's a lot of prep work <laughs> yeah absolutely the best parts of carnival though weren't those two days The best parts were all of the functions that led up to the the actual Fat Tuesday. And we we got to go see old-time carnival the way it was 100 years ago with, like, Moco Jumbies, the guys that walk around on stilts. Yeah. And Grand, what is it, Grand grand Doms that... uh, go up to people and harass them. And there's all kinds of things. And then we went to Kitty Carnival that is mostly for kids. And then we went to... Oh, a Calypso. Yeah, the old Calypso guys, you know, that are 80 years old that are still singing. And they do a sing-off. Yeah. (laughs) And then the steel pan... Panorama. Steel pan drums. Steel pan drums are the only acoustic non-electronic instrument developed in the last century and it was developed in Trinidad using oil drums that were left there by the U.S. after World War II. There was a naval base in Trinidad which hidden up. So they take the drums and you can use the entire drum or cut them down. The face of it then they make concave and tune it and so it's played with mallets. And some steel pan orchestras will have as many as 200 members. And the people who are doing the bass drums will have as many as 12 drums on a wheeled dolly, and they're spinning around playing. The interesting thing about the steel pan orchestras, there is absolutely no sheet music involved. It's all done by ear. Conductor will work with each section, the tenor pans, the bass pans, the whatever, and work on their little section, and he'll go work on another one. So it does take all year. Yeah, to, to prepare for that. Even months, because they take the month after Carnival off, and then they start in again. 
What amazing experiences you guys have had. So with boat life, like what is your just day to day look like for you guys? When we're in Harbor? Yes. When you're on Harbor. Yeah. We get up at five 30. <laughs> and, and Tell her why though, because daylight. Yeah. We're, we're constantly in 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. Okay. And so we get up and have coffee and breakfast and, and then we hop in the dinghy and go to shore and then go to the gym. Okay. Like, like you. And then after after that, we go down and Hope has doubles, which is uh, the traditional Caribbean breakfast, which is uh, two pancakes with chana, chickpeas, and pepper and all kinds of stuff in it. And uh, eat that. I go over to the to the Italian coffee shop and have espresso with my friends. And then we walk to the grocery store and get what we need. And then we catch a bus back to the dinghy. And most of that is while we're all, we're walking. Right. We don't have a vehicle, which I wouldn't want anyway. Right. Um, And then we go back and we have lunch and then we, uh, play Mexican train dominoes. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) And then we have a uh, happy hour. <laughs> you can drop by and have drinks or hors d'oeuvres. And, and then by 8.30, we're sound asleep most of the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, for people that don't go to the gym, there's a morning radio show put on by Yachty's for Yachty's. And that gives the news and the weather and what's going on on the island and those sorts of things. But we don't listen to that except on Saturdays when we're on the boat. But it's, uh, it's just part of being in the community. How big is the community? In the Caribbean basin, it's estimated by Seven Seas Cruising Association that there are 20,000 boats. Wow. So that would be on the average of two people a boat. Uh-huh. Because most most people, right? Most people doing this are couples. So there's forty thousand people in the Caribbean. That's not a lot of people. That's right. not a lot of boats. Because you know that goes from Florida all the way to Trinidad, all the way east, or excuse me, west to the ABC Islands, to the San Blas Islands of Panama. So it's a small community. And the thing about that is that you meet people today. And you know that it's going to be a short relationship because everybody's moving. And so the friendships are made quickly and they're made intensely. And then you might not see those people again for 10 years. Yeah. There's intention in that relationship because you both, yeah, you both are experiencing, you both know that going into it. So like you said, Uh it's, it's intense at first and it's welcoming and it's warm and you know that you're not going to see this person probably tomorrow, but you may run into them five or 10 years from now. Uh-huh. And it is really cool when that happens, that you see somebody coming into Anchorage and, and it's, say, a boat called Jarka, and, oh, my gosh, they finished, they just finished their circumnavigation. We saw them 10 years ago when they left to go around the world. Oh, and my goodness. Them. Yeah. All right. So the community itself, while small, is very, very diverse. Um, in our anchorage near us is a Swiss, no, Swedish. Swedish boat, Canadian, Australian, German, Kiwi, French, 
Brazilian, <laughs> British, German. What else have I missed? I don't know. Most of the boats are from English-speaking countries, but there are some, especially the French, uh -huh. who uh, sail a lot, and the Swedish and the Norwegians. So we're we're in a really and they all diverse. speak English. We don't. Yeah. So there's there's not like a huge language barrier or anything like no, that no, um, at, at times, no. right? Which the only helpful. language barrier would be the patois that the locals speak when they want, don't want us to understand what they're saying. <laughs> when they're talking behind your back. How long have you figured most of it out? Yeah, she can figure it out. I can't. Now, um, let's go back to Trinidad for a moment. After we were, after we'd done Carnival, we were going to make our first trip north because that's that's generally what people do: sail up and down the island chain because you want to be south of 12 degrees, 12.4 degrees north at hurricane season for insurance okay. reasons and for safety reasons. Right. So one of the other things that you have to learn is how to forecast weather. And that's facilitated by NOAA, which is an online resource, National Atmospheric and Oceanic Organization. There are also shortwave radio programs devoted to weather, and then you can subscribe to services that come in over the shortwave radio as well. Well, our very first trip, which was going to be from Trinidad to Grenada, 100 miles, we grossly misread the weather, and we grossly overestimated our capabilities. We left thinking everything was going to be fine. We got onto the north coast of Trinidad and ran into this horrific storm, mm -hmm. and it was really frightening because the waves and the wind were driving us towards the rocks on the shore. And we did what's called an act. We did a jibe, which is turning with the wind behind you, which you're never supposed to do because it can take your rig down. But that was the only way out of the situation. So Steve got us out of that one. And the next close call there is there's a big oil platform in the middle of the... Let me interject something here. Right away... <laughs> Our autopilot crapped out on us. Okay. So we had to hand-stir. Well, hand-stirring a sailboat in pitch darkness is like herding sheep down a freeway. It just doesn't go where you point it. You sit, and there was no nothing to steer by. Then our compass light went out. And so I'm steering with a flashlight on the compass and doing it by hand where normally we would just set a course and let the, the uh, autopilot do it. Hope is seasick and she's laying on the floor of the cockpit. When I'm not hanging over the edge, <laughs> and, my guts out. And I'm looking up 20 feet, looking at the tops of the waves, and we're kind of bobbing along. And it was raining and windy and yeah, I was sure we were going to die. Yeah, I was going to say, so, I mean, obviously, that's a pretty grave situation. I mean, what really goes through your mind at that time? I mean, obviously, a lot of mixed emotions, and obviously, it's about survival. But like you just said, I mean, you really, you really, truly thought that there, this, that might be the end. Yeah, we almost hit an oil platform as well, and, we're, and they were trying to fend us off with guns because we got too close to them. And yeah, I, I, at that point, because I was just desperately ill. And if you've never been seasick, it's really hard to describe, but yeah, I was ready to die and was kind of well, welcoming it because you know, I wouldn't <laughs> think anymore. But Steve was just a champ. He was at one point, we took a portion of our 
covering, it's called a dodger, out so that after the skies had cleared, I could lay in the cockpit on the floor, wet and sick and miserable, but I could still see the stars so Mm -hmm. that I could tell him a little bit, okay, you're veering east, you're veering west, you know, you've got a load star that you're following. And Steve is kind of unflappable. He just takes everything with a great deal of equanimity and he's like, we'll get through this, we'll get through this. And then, and this is all at night because it's a 16 hour journey. So you're going to be traveling a bunch of it, most of it in the nighttime. But when, when dawn broke, Steve was still at the helm. He'd been there all night long and we could see Grenada and the seas calmed. Wow. Seasickness went away and it was just like magic. Wow. It was just as though a magic wand had come along and calmed everything, got rid of all of the impediments to our journey. And we were just, this is why we did this. This Mm -hmm. is why we chose to do this. And it's an enormous feeling of accomplishment too. When you go through something like that and. And you go through it together. Yeah. And it wasn't pretty and it wasn't by the book and I wouldn't recommend anybody else doing it that way. I God, we did it. You know, that was cool. They always say the safest place is on, is on, a, on your boat because they'll take you where you want to go. And I really believe that. It's about trusting your vessel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that year we waited a month in Grenada and then got up our nerve and then we sailed north on the, the island chain and all the way to a French island, which was a, a unique experience. And then back, and we ended up back in Trinidad and we added solar panels because we wanted to be energy independent. And so now we have wind generator, solar panels. We make almost all of our own energy. We have a, a generator that we can use if we need it, but we catch oh. all of our own water, or rainwater. We have a system des- for that. Or we desalinate. Yeah, we can desalinate if we want to. That's just another one of the systems that we failed to talk about earlier. But that shakedown crew cruise was really something. And once you go through something like that, you think, oh, golly, I can do just about anything. <laughs> That's right, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. What? Now, I know you guys do some some volunteer work as well. Is that correct? Yeah, we, after a couple years, we decided instead of basing in Trinidad, we would stay in Grenada because we missed that hundred, hundred mile piece of water between Grenada and Trinidad, which is not only tricky because of the way the water funnels between the islands. So it picks up velocity and the winds do too. And all of our weather comes from the east. So wind and water are all blowing us westward. So we didn't particularly like that stretch of water. So we decided to stay in and make Grenada our base. And so for the next few years, we would sail out of Grenada, north and south. And when then we were in Grenada, we were there long enough that, as Steve alluded to, we, were, we made friends. We found a gym to go to. Got a driver. We uh, volunteered in a reading program, a tutoring program for Grenadian children, and that was a weekly thing. And, and you know, those are friends that we have made that's, that here 15 years later, we still, you know, are still dear friends, dear friends. Right, um, right. So we tutored children 
an American expat has started a program in Grenada to teach people how to swim because even though probably 50% of the people on the island are have traveled outside of the country and so are very worldly in that respect, 70% of the people on the island don't know how to swim. Wow. And so we volunteered with a program that, that gives free swimming lessons. Mm-hmm. And I think over the course of the five years that program's been going, we've, I think we've, not just two of them, I mean, it's huge, but I think we've given swimming lessons to over 5,000 people. And so, you know, we've, indirectly, we have helped, you know, save some lives. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So we raised money for the Cancer Society, and that was done because a friend had cancer, Mm -hmm. and they needed needed funds. Right, absolutely. So we would do that. What else? Let's see. Um, there's more stuff that we do. Oh, we'll talk about laundry and... Oh, yeah, how we do our... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure our listeners would be just absolutely curious to know. I mean, I know that Steve kind of explained a little bit of, like, your day-to-day life, but, yeah, some of those simple things that we take for granted, like you said, doing laundry and, you know, I mean, just... Go ahead. Everything takes longer. We live a life that's very much like our life on land, except that we are surrounded by water and we're a half a mile offshore and everything takes a whole lot longer. Because as Steve said, we walk most everywhere. Laundry, you know, you have to haul your stuff in to be done, to go to the grocery store. I tell people this, we travel half a mile in our dinghy to shore, then we walk a half a mile and maybe catch a bus or maybe not. And if we don't, then we walk a mile to the gym and then we walk a half a mile to the grocery store and then a half a mile back to the bus. And then the bus will take us to a stop where we then walk another half a mile and then we get in our dinghy and go another half a mile out to our boat. All the time you're schlepping all of these bags. Right. That how many trips to land do you guys make on average during the week? Well, at least daily. Really? Okay. Yeah. Except yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Because we go to the gym every day and, and yeah. then Saturdays we hike. So and since about 2013, we don't sail anymore. Okay. We just live on our boat in Grenada. We're just to the point where it's it's just actually too much hassle. Not too much hassle with, with some medical stuff and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So we live in Grenada. So how many months of the year do you guys live in Grenada then? Usually seven. Okay. And we call, we call it sailing season and surgery season when we're back in the U.S. <laughs> come back. Um, <laughs> come back for your yeah. treatments and come back for your checkups and everything like that. And, and then head back, head back out to the waters. Yeah. And so since we're not sailing our boat anymore, because, you know, the other thing is when you get ready to go somewhere, you have to do a lot of stowing of things, yeah. you know, books. A lot of prep work. A lot of prep work. And so instead, we've been sailing with friends. So for a while, we thought we might want to buy a catamaran because they're easier living on board. So we did some crewing on a catamaran. And then we crewed some charters where Steve was in charge of the food and I was in charge of the snorkeling 
expeditions and that kind of stuff. And then I also did helped with a boat delivery from Grenada to Fort Lauderdale. And that was a a 10 day, 1500 miles, 10 days. Um, We were out of sight of land for most of it, but um, that was a really interesting thing because there you have other challenges like crossing the Gulf Stream and and there's all this minutia that you don't ever think about um, that becomes a part of your life because now you're doing it all yourself and having to figure it out. We have been in Grenada long enough that, you know, we've, we've been to weddings and funerals and family gatherings and that kind of stuff. So it really has become our second home. Right, I uh, bet. One thing that, that I think I find very interesting is the fact that over the course of the 14 years we've been doing this, there's been just an absolute sea change in both cruising, which is what they call what we do, in terms of equipment is much better. Communications are much better. We didn't have a computer when we started. We didn't have a cell phone when we started. You got your weather over the single sideband radio. And now all of that is completely different. Everybody is plugged in just like you are on shore. And I kind of miss the old ways, but that's always the case when old people get to talking. Um, (laughs) One other thing that I have found fascinating is that you know the changes that have gone on in our society over the course of 50 years, where small towns are being decimated and losing their retail sectors and all that kind of stuff as people are more mobile and have a bit more money and go to you know, malls and what have you. And so we've been watching that same process play out in parts of the Caribbean. Stuff that took 50 to 60 years to happen in the U.S. has occurred over the course of the 14 years that we have been in the Caribbean. And so watching this huge sociological experiment right before you... Well, an explosion, really, it sounds like. I mean, it just... Yeah. Some of the... Other things, there is something called hashing, the hash house harriers. This is, they call it a group of drinkers with a running problem. And this all started back in the 40s in Indonesia, where some British, a British regiment of harriers, that was their official designation, stayed in, they were billeted in what was called a hash house. And they would just get knee-walking drunk on Saturday nights, and then Sundays would go out and run through the bush to get all of the toxins out of their system. Yeah, all sure. Years, this has been something that's, that's common to most Commonwealth countries, British Commonwealth countries. So every week they have what's called a hash, and somebody sets a trail and sets false trails, and three to four to 600 people will gather and run through the bush, through the streams, over the mountains. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) um, And then end up at a party. And it's just a wonderful way to, again, meet lots of people from all over the world. So Um, have you guys done that? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, um, some of them are too challenging for us. Sure. Sure. You know, because it's all rough country. But there's always a party at the end, right? There's always a party. Yeah. Believe it or not, on this little island of 125,000 people, the biggest, what would you call it? The the biggest cell or 
Whatever what they, of that. It, it, what are they called? What are they called? Anyway, this is the biggest group of hash house harriers in the world. <laughs> and it has have the biggest hash hashes in the world. It's absolutely amazing when you see that. Mm-hmm. And that's a Grenadian thing. Yeah, and that's... you talk about a party afterwards, and a lot of the times they serve oil down, which is the national dish of Grenada. And they, they get a big open fire in a big pot, and they get a bunch of eggplant, breadfruit, pigtails, back and necks from chicken. Provision. Provision, which is like potatoes and sweet potatoes and okay. things like that. And they make a curry, and they, they cook this for several hours. And then when the oil... The, they put coconut, shaved coconut. Yeah, shaved coconut. When that oil goes down, it's ready to eat. And that's oh. why oil down. Yeah. And they also have hog snout and a few other things in there. Yeah, and I, I'm not real fond of it because I don't like stuff where you can identify the person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not going to eat it. Yeah, I, another thing, we have these huge turtles in the Caribbean that range between 800 and 1,200 pounds. And every year they come back to the same place where they were born. And Grenada has a, a turtle watch where you leave about midnight and then get on the beach about one o'clock to see if you can find a female turtle that's coming out of the ocean to lay their eggs. Mm-hmm. And the night that we went, as soon as we got there, we saw a nest of baby turtles hatch. Wow. And our hands and knees and started digging the sand out and getting them. And they all just kind of head for the ocean. And we turn around and here comes a, here comes the, a female digging a nest and laying her eggs and then covering the nest and then going about 20 feet away and making a false nest. And then she's so tired, she just struggles back to the ocean and gets in and disappears. Wow. And that lasted about three hours. That was an amazing experience. And they have they have Grenadians and Trinidadians that guard these beaches so people don't eat the turtles. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I bet. Oh, my gosh. The experiences that you both have had over the last 15 years, just the courage and, you know, the resiliency. I mean, gosh, just the story that you shared about the storm, you know, that you both weathered through alone. I mean, most people would have given up um, at that point. You're in the middle of the war. You don't have an option. But, but, But even at the end of it, after it was all over, you know, a lot of people would have said, you know what? This is not the life for me. But I love the fact that the two of you, when, like you said, you know, when the sun came up and the water was calm and your seasickness went away, that wasn't the thought you had at all. It was, we made it. We survived. We can yeah. do this. We can do this. Yeah. And that's the coolest thing about this life that we live is the fact that it has challenged us mentally and physically and experientially in ways that we never ever thought because we didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't know that it was going to work out this way. And it has been such an enormous gift that we could do this, that we could 
try things and see things and meet people that we would never, ever have a chance to otherwise. It has been such an amazing journey. And we're at the point now where, again, because of of health reasons and age and all that kind of stuff, we're transitioning to readying our boat for sale. But I think as long as we're able and as long as we can get back into the country, which we can't right now, as long as we're able, we will continue to spend part of each year in Grenada. Yeah. Um, just because. Well, it, like it, you said, that's a home for, that's your home. You know, that's a second home for you. That's your part, of, you're part of the community. You're part of the culture. I mean, I can see when the two of you speak, just how much your face lights up. When you talk about being on your boat and being in Trinidad and being in Grenada and how much of a part of you that it has become. We had the boat, this boat that I delivered to Florida because the couple that was on it was selling it. And when I was talking with them about what they were going to miss most about the life that we live, and they said living outdoors, because essentially that's what we do. Um, we We eat in our cockpit, we walk everywhere we go, you know, we do yoga outdoors, Everything, most of our life is, except for the sleeping, is conducted outdoors. And I don't care what kind of setup we've ever managed to rig for ourselves on land. It's never the same. It's just about sitting in the cockpit at six o'clock in the morning, watching the sun come up with a cup of coffee. You're surrounded by water. You look out and there's a manta ray swimming by um, or a school of fish. You hear them gnawing on the the growth on the bottom of the boat. Um, It's just a magic that you cannot even, you can't even express. Right. What questions do you have? What else do you want us to tell you about? Well, I, first of all, I think you did a fantastic job sharing your story and sharing your journey. And the the only question I have is when are you two going to write a book? (laughs) When we started this, I'd been a newspaper columnist for on a volunteer basis for about 15 years, 20. And, and I wrote for a number of newspapers in, the, in Iowa from where we used to live. And I continued to do that for the first two years that we were living aboard. But it takes so long to explain everything. <laughs> we do is, is unusual. You know, like, right. how do you get your groceries? How do you... How do you do laundry? Where's your power come from, et cetera? And by the time you get done explaining the details of something, there's not time left for a story. So I got tired of it. I don't know if I'll ever pick it up again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well maybe you should start your own podcast, huh? <laughs> I would have to get technologically adept first. <laughs> not, not that hard. I can walk you through it. <laughs> I don't want to thank you, but that, that's a nice offer. <laughs> Is there anything else? I would just, I just want to end kind of by saying that if you've got a dream or an inkling of a dream, do everything you can to make it come true. Say yes every time you can because the rewards are just beyond what you could ever imagine. It's an exponential return on investment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember we, uh, a couple of years ago when we got back, our driver was dying of cancer. And we rushed to the hospital. I got to kiss him and hug him and hold him and sort of hope. And two days later, he died. And that's how we tied into the community and we've met all these absolutely wonderful people, most of who are very smart. Yes. And 
that's been the, the highlights for me. Um, yeah. It's been a great experience. So take- and I've had a lot of great experiences in my life before this. Yeah. You know, I, it's been wonderful. Yeah. The, our community is, by definition, people who are intelligent for the most part, because you have, there's a lot to learn, but also people who are risk takers or adventuresome, who are, yes. are willing to step outside their comfort zone. And that's been a huge part of the fun that we've had, but it's also been a huge lesson for us to teach us to continue that path, to continue stepping outside of bounds and trying new things, whether it's food or culture or religion or people or whatever. But, um, yeah. There's always something around the corner that, that is completely unexpected and it might enrich your life in ways that you would never, ever have dreamt possible. And like you had said, you know, I think when we first had started that, you know, that you necessarily weren't fearful about any of this because it didn't have to be permanent. If it wasn't something that was going to work out, then you just change directions. And, you know, you try something new, you do something new. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but this has obviously worked out very well for both of you. Yeah, yeah. we have been very fortunate. Now yeah. we're waiting for the next challenge. Yeah, see what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, for sharing your story. It has been absolutely a delight to listen to you and, you know, to share your adventures with our listeners. I really appreciate you taking the time. Ah, thank you so much. It's been fun because we got to relive it as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Six Pack. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. Please share this episode with a friend. And if you haven't already, click subscribe. Rate and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Have a beautiful week. And tell the important people in your life just how much you care about them. Much love and blessings to you all.